Coming up, Cynthia Nixon and Terrence Davies talk Emily Dickinson, and we go along with First Blood director Ted Kotcheff. No, I don't want you to read that, just want you to do it. Um, everyone else has to audition. I think she was so ahead of her time in thinking that these things were an option, like whether she would marry or not. Right. Was right. That, that, for her, that was an, a, a question. Yeah. It wasn't like she was dying to get married and she didn't get married. She chose not to marry. The thing that I warm to is her spiritual crisis. You know, was there a God? Is there a soul? And how do you come to terms with that yeah, being yes or no? So the received wisdom was, Sylvester Stallone only works in rock. Only in the boxing ring. That's right, <laughs> only in the boxing ring. And I said, no, 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 this guy's perfect. He's got the strength for this thing. There's a kind of a poignancy about him, which I love. If you're in something for the long haul, you're not constantly taking its temperature. Best word for what I do is not directing. I shouldn't be called a director, because the director sounds like a guy who runs a bank or something. <laughs> <laughs> the French have a great word for it, réalisateur, yeah. a realizer. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. I know, I know, it's nice outside. You don't want to be inside. The rain has finally stopped. There's no more snow coming. A nice breeze blows down the street before the stifling humidity takes us all over and turns us into giant slugs that don't want to do anything. You want to get out. You want to breathe the air. You want to see what's going on. I'm going to tell you, we have something better. Come on in. You've knocked on the door already. Come on in, have a seat at the bar, pour yourself a Negroni, and sit back and listen to the conversations on offer today. So, a little bit later on, we're going to talk to Ted Kotcheff. Ted Kotcheff is the legendary director who made First Blood, The Apprenticeship of Goody Kravitz, Wake and Fright, North Dallas 40, loads of other things. We go along with him a little bit later on in the show. We're also going to talk about Emily Dickinson. We don't do a lot of poetry on this show. But Emily Dickinson is the subject of A Quiet Passion, a new biopic that really sort of gets under the skin of this reclusive American poet who only produced, well, she produced 2,000 poems in her lifetime. She only published seven of them. She has gone on with the posthumous publication of her work to be one of the most influential and best-loved poets America has ever produced. And this film, made by a British director named Terence Davies and starring Cynthia Nixon, really gets to the heart of it. It took years to make this film. Absolutely years. Not decades, but a very, very long time. But they have succeeded in telling Dickinson's story, bringing to life not only the facts that she was reclusive and never married, that kind of stuff, but also the essence of a person with an insatiable need to question everything, societal norms, what happens when we die, to have a woman asking a question like, do I want to get married? Should I get married? In her time was groundbreaking. The movie really does a nice job of bringing that all to life. Spoke with Terrence Davies now. It's pretty crowded over here at the House of Kraus the day he swung by. So there's a bit of noise on this, but he's a fascinating guy and he's worth having a listen to. Um, he is best known probably as the director of the House of Mirth, Lucy, uh, but he, in my mind, will always live on because he is the originator of the quote, there's only one thing more embarrassing than an actor with a gun. That's a British actor with a gun. It's ridiculous. 
That has nothing to do with Emily Dickinson. I just like the ring of it. I've said it often, and uh, I'm glad to share it with you. Anyway, we're going to start with Terrence Davies. He's going to tell you why Emily Dickinson is important, not only to him, but should be important to you as well. Why Emily Dickinson and why now? I see a lot of timely aspects to this story, but you tell me why. Well, it was by accident, really. I mean, I I was 18 and I was working as a very lowly bookkeeper in a, in a county practice. And on the, the local TV station, they used to have these 15-minute documentaries. And, you know, one was on Tom Jones and one was on uh, Emily Dickinson. And it was Claire Bloom reading the poetry. Um, and I still remember the first one was because I could not stop for death. He kindly stopped me, so I ran out. I bought a small anthology. Um, and in the front they have a little press here about her life. But I just wanted to read the poems. And at that time, as I say, I wasn't in the arts or anything. And about ten years ago, I, th- I reread them and I thought... I'd like to know more about her, and I think I read six biographies, um, and it it struck me what an extraordinary life it was. Even though she was a recluse, her inner life was very, very rich, and um, the the thing that I warmed to is her spiritual crisis. You know, was there a God? Is there a soul? And how do you come to terms with? that yet being yes or no and and I, I was brought up as a, um, a very strict Catholic and I was very devout um, but I finally lost my faith when I was 22 so I know what that that feels like to, to lose something um, that leaves a hole inside you I've tried to fill it with poetry and music uh, and that kind of thing um, but she doesn't do that um, and I thought that spiritual um, journey was very interesting also she happens to be um, the greatest of the 19th century American novelists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, and, and she is a product of a generation of female writers who came just before her, I think, in, in some ways, because uh, there, there were a number of women writing uh, and a number of women who had attained great fame, but uh, the numbers were fairly small, and I think she probably went back to Bronte and people like that and said, well, you know, there's, there, there's, a, there's a, a path here for me to step on. But she uh, struck me uh, in the film and just what little I know about her. I, know her poetry. I don't know anything much about her, or didn't know anything much about her. Uh, but I had read the poems, and, or a lot of them. There's two thousand of them, or something. I've read, I've read yes. a number of them. Um, uh, but I tended to uh, think of, of her more as uh, writing about romantic tragedy, not the spiritual stuff. She did that, and and she wrote about great joy and the ecstasies of life and all that stuff. But I tended to 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 be drawn towards some of the other poems. Uh, but I, I do think to get back to my original line of thought here, uh, that she, she walked a path that was paid for her before that, but did it in her own idiosyncratic way. And I think that's one of the things that makes her really interesting in that um, she wasn't looking to have a film made about her life 150 years later. I don't, I don't think that, that that kind of response would have been important. But what I think was important, and I think it's important to every artist, they need recognition. Um, they need some kind of solace 
for what they have done. And she never got that. I mean, out of 1,808 poems, only seven or 11 were ever published, and they altered the punctuation. And if you read the, the original punctuation, it is extremely eccentric, but it makes sense. Um, but I, And that's true of everybody. If you have any kind of endeavor, and it's not just the arts, let's say you're a very, very good carpenter, what you need is someone to say, yes, it's worthwhile, it, it is worth, it is has worth, and she never, never got that. She didn't even get it from Reverend Watkins. That was entirely uh, I, uh, that scene I made up myself. Um, she never, never had that. Um, but what what goes al goes along with that, that is is not an acceptance, but thank you. Not an acceptance, but a, a hope that things will get better. I mean, I think she, she, I mean, she did desperately want someone to love her and, and find her beautiful. Um, and her, fra her phrases of the looming man will come in the night are hers, but it's, it's very odd that she used the word looming, which has a kind of mysterious but rather f sinister quality. It's an ominous feel to it, yeah. Well, see, my, my, I wonder if, because she was so close to her, her, her blood family, that it, it almost seemed like it would be impossible for her to be feel that closeness with someone that she wasn't directly related to. Yes, absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. Um, and uh, that was, in a way, partially my feeling. I, ca I come from a large working class family. There were seven of us. Um, and I didn't want it to change. You know, I, I, I mean, and I was only a, um, a child when they started to get married. I'm just leaving this field. Perfect, thank you. And I thought, well, why do you want to go? I mean, these are very nice people, but why can't you just be friends with them? Yeah. You know, and we'll all stay together. That, of course, is fatal. You're, that can't happen. The only time that happened is to meet me in St. Louis. It doesn't happen anywhere else. Um, but I did understand that. Um, I think she was afraid of the world, in that sense, and afraid of men, as a lot of women were. I mean, they knew nothing about sex. I mean, imagine not knowing anything, this dreadful thing that you're supposed to do, and that you can possibly get pregnant and you could die. Yeah. <laughs> and there was no kind of analgesic for any kind of pain, and she must have gone through an enormous amount of pain, yet she did not stop writing. And that, uh, and when there is darkness there, there it's not about um, the assuaging of physical pain, it's, it's the, about the assuaging of spiritual pain. And she never gets, and she doesn't get either. And I find that utterly tragic. But the film is very funny as well. Oh, well, I didn't want her to be solemn. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a completely tragic story. Uh, there are moments in it, the one that, that comes back to me now, where the, the plate is dirty, she picks it up, drops it on the floor, and says, well, it's not dirty anymore. And something like that could take us out of the film. It's a bit of, it's almost slapstick, I guess, you know, but it could take us out of the film. How do you as a filmmaker ensure that we don't find it so strange or bizarre that that has happened? Uh, one doesn't design that. I mean, that's literally what happened. That's what she did, you know. Um, is it true? Uh, yes, is that it's, true? that's oh, what she I did, yeah. you know. Um, um, 
But you don't, because you, because you can't preempt an audience, you don't know what they're going to. Uh, right. uh, and when people do say, um, it's the one thing that does make me very angry, um, where people say, well, perhaps helping you make the film, the audience will think this. I said, you can't, you don't know that. We only know that after the fact. And you've got to, you've got to make it true and believable um, to yourself. Otherwise, you can't communicate that to the actors. And um, if it feels organic to the material once you once you've cut it, then you just think, I hope I hope they like it and, and find it funny. Um, but you can never know, and you certainly can't preempt it. The, I think the only person who knows exactly what the audience wants is Steven Spielberg, and that's probably his genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he uh, does tend to think backwards, I think, from the audience point of view into his film. Yeah. Wish I could do it. Yeah, well, that is his genius, as you say, you know. Um, uh, is she, uh, 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 or is there a message here for women today in this film? Oh, gosh, I don't know that. I, I honestly don't know that. All, all I know is that... Um, You know, I, my great, great love was my mother, who had a terrible life, but my, my father was alive. And what I found more moving than anything else is that she didn't become bitter. Right. It was, her attitude was, you know, that those are the cards you're dealt so you get on with it. And she was full of love and no bitterness, not even anger. And I just find that almost unbearable and when I see other other people in this case it happens to be a woman in those circumstances where they have to face the cards that they've been given in this case she does become better and, and that's only my interpretation right. there's no hard evidence that she did but but, well, but that's but only my wasn't documented particularly well other than her writing yeah. yeah and so and because I was again brought up by my sisters there's a I do have a sort of fellow feeling um, with women because I've gotten—I don't want anything from them, you know—and um, I like their company. Um, so I, I'm already pro them anyway. Especially when I was growing up. I mean, Northern British women are so funny. <laughs> uh, they always come came around on a Friday night to do all their makeup, and I was allowed to buy it. I, mean, I loved Fridays, so it's all part of that as well. Um, but I, I don't—I don't think you can start off with an agenda because then I think it becomes form dictating content and it should always be the other way around. And uh, why Cynthia Nixon? She's been attached to this project for a very long time and uh, well, four years, which I mean seems like to an outsider like a long time, but that's how long it takes to get films made, I guess, often, right? Well, I met her for a film that we didn't get money for, it was a comedy, and we couldn't get money for it, but I met her and I'd not forgotten her. And when I was writing this, I kept on seeing her face, and then I saw the only extant photograph of Emily when she was 17, and I said to Saul, would you superimpose her face on this, this original photograph and she looked exactly like the, an older version of her but I, I just knew she was right because in every film I always cast someone who I say no I don't want you to read I just want you to do it um, everyone else has to audition but and it was one of those things where I just I just said I know you're right I just know and she just was and she was, and, she was and better than all right coincidentally <laughs> she has long been a Dickinson fan 
Yes, and she's told me when, when we um, first met in New York, um, when her mother died, she came home and several lines of Emily Dickinson ran through her head. And we did the poems as a, as a guide track. And they're so good, I said, we don't need to re-record them. They're so good. Because she understands it. Yes, and she, she feels them. And with, with, you can either read poetry or you can't. It's not something you can I teach cannot. anybody. I cannot. I was hired a while ago to do a, a, a voiceover thing, and I had to read a poem, and we did it. I did it. I thought it sounded okay. The director's like, let's just try it again. Like, and you know, that just like, let's do one more for safety. Let's do it. You know, you know that you're not doing something right. <laughs> yes. and, uh, and I couldn't get it. I could not get it. And I, 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 I don't know why, but you can or you can't. Yes. And I am someone but, but what was wonderful is um, we, this guide track that we did. Um, I had always seen or heard in my own mind, because I could not stop for death, as grave, shall we say. Um, and she read it with this kind of detached, wry, like it's someone else. I said, how on earth did yeah. you think to do it like that? Because it's perfect, because it's wry, as though it's happening to someone. And I just thought that was wonderful. Just, that was thrilling. And, and you know, what, and that was before you started shooting, was that? Well, it was in the middle of we were shooting. We did a guy track one afternoon right. on the set. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> And, and and which is we see in the or hear in the film and, and the film is cut very specifically to it so it's kind of amazing then that it works so well yes because uh, when I write a script I write everything in it because some of those traveling shots are timed to the poem you know um, so the, the only, the only sort of slight restriction was not reading it too slowly or too fast um, but you know, uh, the guide track was so marvellous. I said, I don't want to, I don't want to touch this at all. It's too perfect. But it, 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 it's wonderful when someone gets it, but does something different with it. That's what's thrilling. That was Terence Davies talking about Emily Dickinson, talking about his star Cynthia Nixon. She really brings Emily Dickinson to life. She will always be best known, probably for playing Miranda on Sex in the City. It's a shame because she is prodigiously gifted, but when you have a character attached to your resume that was living at the very center of popular culture, a show that lived at the very center of popular culture, it's very hard to walk away from that. Perhaps if you see A Quiet Passion, you'll understand the depth to which she can go and bring a character like Emily Dickinson, someone that we know a little bit about, someone who we think we know, and, and reveal otherwise unknown depths. It's good stuff. The movie is called The Quiet Passion. Here's some for next Emily Dickinson rings a lot of bells for a lot of people. Yeah. I understand you were a fan, a, a long-time yes, fan, yes. and why? Uh, my mother was a fan. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was I was born in the 60s, and in the early 70s, uh, Julie Harris was doing the Belle of Amherst, yeah. so she was sort of enjoying that, uh, you know, Emily was enjoying that. Mm -hmm. um, and so not only did I watch the Belle of Amherst, but we had a, we had a record at home of Julie Harris reading some of the poems and the letters yeah. also, which was very, and so a lot of them, 
kind of I, I would listen to them again and again. So so some of the better known poems sort of I, I knew already by heart, and even parts of the letters and stuff. Um, and I just think that there is something that so many of us can relate to about this person who who might seem very ordinary on the outside, sort of plain, and but the minute, but there's such worlds inside her, and also the minute she speaks, she's, right. you know, unexpected, and do you know, because Emily, by all accounts, certainly when she was out in society, was kind of a, you know, a live wire. Yeah, well, I've always thought of her as a rebel. I yeah. mean, if you look at, if you look at the, the width and breadth of her work, yeah. there's 2,000 poems or something, or 1,800 or 2,000 poems or something like that, and they range. I mean, they're not, they're, they're not all along one spectrum. No. And uh, and that, for me, has been always been the thing that I find interesting to see what part of the spectrum people gravitate towards right. the more uh, joyful or the right. more on the, the nature, the, right, yeah. rhapsodizing about nature yeah, or yeah. the torment of love and for me it was the torment of love. Yes. Those I are like the more those interesting ones, ones I think. For me anyway. Uh, and I and I the ones about pondering eternity and yeah. is there a God and uh, how do we bend ourselves to what seem to be, you know, God's laws, or should we ignore them, and what, what price will we pay if we defy them? Right, and the social norms of the day, too. And I, I think it's interesting, because you didn't have a lot of women at that era, of that era, writing. Right. Well, you didn't have a lot of women of that era writing anyway, right. I don't think. But certainly writing about issues uh, in that way, I don't think. Right. I may All be the, wrong. I may right. Be wrong. I mean, yes, there was a lot of, you know, what we would now call rom-com, you know, not yeah. not com, but you know, yeah, I yeah. guess rom tragedy, you know, <laughs> very flowery and very, you know, and verbose and you yes, know, like, like verbose. But I think that when you think about people like the Brontes, and you think about Elizabeth Barrett Browning, those are giants. Yeah, yeah. And they came just before her, and she clung to them. I mean, she adulated them in, in a way that they because they were speaking to her like water in the desert you know and and also that she admired them so much and they were published and they were known yeah, and yeah. Uh, so I yeah I mean I think it was she was unusual for that time but I think the the, the, the the female literary giants that were that were there just preceding her meant the world to her. Right, right. This is a project that you were initially approached with in 2012. It's 2016 now. Now, always, I know movies take a long time to get made frequently, and four years actually probably isn't yeah. all that long. But how do you keep your enthusiasm up for a project? Whatever it might you know, be, over the course of right. Of I mean, year. It, 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 it seems so intimidating and also just so amazing. Yeah. Um, but I also, I really never thought it would come together. Is that right? Yeah. I just thought, you know, thank you for thinking of me for Terrence. It is a good part for me, but I don't see how you're going to get a finance. <laughs> but um, so, you know, I didn't. I always had it in the back of my mind, but I wasn't. It wasn't like I was impatient because. I couldn't, even when it was all really finally coming together, I couldn't quite believe it. And just because of its subject matter, or because it's a period piece, or because... Yes, and the starring in a you know, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a it's lot, a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
are you someone that has, I guess, that you must, it must be how the business works, you have a number of things happening and gestating at various stages of, of completion all the time? Yes, but I also, you know, I was, I started acting as a, a child, as a 12 year old. Yep. And so what, I, what that taught me, because I was in a very difficult school, actually my friend Jonathan is here, we were in seventh grade together. Really? And, um, <laughs> and have you stayed friends all yes, the way Yes, we stayed really? friends all the way. He lives in Toronto. So he always comes to the Toronto Film Festival with me. But um, what I learned then was when I would have a job that I wasn't, that I was up for, that I really wanted, that I didn't get, I would think to myself, well, at least I don't have to do double duty. I don't have to do school and work. And so I think that learning that so early has, and of course I have three children and I'm married and yeah. You know, I run a household, and so I think I when I'm when I'm not working, I think I feel it less than it, other people. Interesting, though, because I think yeah, you feel it less than other people because you have that background. Yeah, and, and so and that's you know that's the grounding I think that a lot of child actors don't have. Right. And that right, that because child actors yeah. so much about yeah. the highs, and then yeah. you can you know. Yeah, longevity, longevity. Longevity is all Yeah, about yeah, you can't, if you want, if you're in something for the long haul, you're not constantly taking its temperature. Right, you know? right. Yeah. Uh, Emily Dickinson, what is timely about her uh, for right now? I mean, I think certainly the big questions she's asking as a person and also as a woman, they're just, they're the big questions, mm -hmm. you know? How do I, what do I do with all this love I feel? What does it mean to be intimate with another person and will I lose myself and do I want to lose myself? Um, and what is the nature of the, you know, what is, what is death? What is that going to be and is there a God and is there heaven? And, um, I, you know, I, I think that she's, I think she was so, ahead of her time in thinking that these things were an option, like whether she would marry or not. Right. Was right. That, that, for her, that was an, a, a question. Yeah. It wasn't like she was dying to get married and she didn't get married. She chose not to marry. And whether she was going to be a mother or not. You know, th these are things that, that women today deal with as a matter of course, but in the 19th century, most people, women wouldn't have even stopped to consider. Yeah, that. yeah. That's interesting. And, and yeah. I guess, you know, what you have is a very uh, specific story, with, but with very universal themes that are still echoing through to today. Yeah. 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 And I think she's so much about connection and isolation. And I think she's almost someone for whom the connections are so powerful and so intense. She has to protect herself from them. And I think her, her connections with her her parents and her siblings are so powerful, she almost can't imagine moving on and creating a family of her own with strangers. Yeah, and doing says. it again. Yeah. Doing it again. Yeah. The movie is much funnier than I thought it would be. Yeah. And that was a surprise to me. Yes. I did not see that coming. Yes, and, and that was something that Terrence talked to me about always from the very beginning. And why so? Like, what, what was his uh, thought? What was his thought on that? Well, I think that. He felt, first of all, he didn't want the movie to be stodgy or dull. He didn't want it to be like masterpiece theater, you know, cardboard version. Um, but I think he also felt that she was a person of tremendous vitality and, and was a rebel and was a, a critic. 
Do you know? And if you're criticizing society, I mean, unless you want to just rail against it and turn people off, you do it with humor. I mean, that's the that's the. She sees the disjunct between yeah. the way things are supposed to be and the way things are, yeah. and she's not. She doesn't try and wallpaper over anything. She she sort of shines a flat uh, a spotlight on the on the dichotomy. Well, I was like, for instance, the the dinner scene where you know my plate's dirty and then it's not dirty anymore, and you smash it on the the ground. Right. That could have taken me out of it, but I bought it. Right. It made sense for the character to do that. Right, and you see, and I mean, that's the thing is she's so cognizant of of patriarchy and and sort of patriarchy that doesn't even realize it's patriarchy. Right. That right. that a, you know that a man can turn to his female family member and yeah. and, and 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 address her in this way, and yeah. she doesn't let it pass. Yeah. But it, it, it's funny because it's a laugh out for me anyway. It was it's a very laugh out funny. Loud moment, well, it's right? so shocking. It's so shocking. I mean, it's even so today, shocking. if anybody did that, I would, I would be of shocked course. by it, right? Of course. But I, I, I thought that. Uh, but it also speaks to the level of rage inside her that she can snap so quickly. Just like that. Yeah. Um, but it, but it's laugh out loud funny. But as I said, it, it made sense within the context of the character and the time and everything. It didn't take me out of it. Yeah. And you, you never know with moments like that, right? And, yeah, and you but have I, to carefully calibrate. But I you think, know, you know, if you think about the 19th century, if you think about the mid-19th century in America, certainly, and you think about the issues that we were dealing with in terms of African Americans and women, it's just a straight line from there to here. We've obviously come very far in that line, but it's it's the same, it's exactly the same issues. You know, are women going to be treated equally? Are African Americans really going to become an actual part of the society, or they're going to be kept separate with lesser? Well, in in in, in your country, primarily, the, or not primarily, but uh, the, these Absolutely. are amplified, and it seems in the last. I don't know, in the last two years, <laughs> it seems yes. like these conversations have gotten louder and 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 and, and almost in some ways taken a step backwards. Uh, I don't think they've taken a step backwards. No, I, I, I really don't. I, mean, I just I, I look at it as someone sort of looking at it in a different country, you know. Right. And and uh, and. No, I through the news I worked with Lawrence Fishburne, you know, because yeah, he was doing yeah, Hannibal. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And he yeah. was living here, yeah. and he said. It is like night and day. It looks just the same, but his experience as a black person here was like, it was, the, the feeling is so different. It, it, we we, and, and we I, are separated, we are bonded by like a common language, but there's a, it, it's a, a much a different world place. of difference. Yeah. And I think that, I don't think it's gotten worse. I just think that a reality that a certain segment of the American population has been living through for hundreds of years, you know, it's now moved center stage. And so we all see it now and it's shocking to us and we think, oh, things are becoming terrible. No, things have always been terrible in this way. It's just now people have phones right, and right. they can film it, you know? That's what I guess what I meant by amplifying. You know, we're, we're seeing it now. We're I seeing it, but it's not new and it's not different and it's not worse. Yeah. It's just we're actually being forced to acknowledge it. That was Cynthia Nixon talking about being a child actor, talking about Emily Dickinson, talking about lots and lots and lots of things right here on the House of Crafts. Next up, Ted Kotcheff. Ted Kotcheff learned storytelling on the streets of Toronto before taking a stagehand job at CBC Television. He had someone die just seconds before he was going live on air with a very structured drama 
We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. We'll talk about the apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz and why he didn't hire more Canadians on a story that is quintessentially Canadian. We'll talk about First Blood. We'll talk about lots of stuff. We'll also talk about his new book. It's called Director's Cut. And it is a, a, a living and breathing document of his career. And you'll know when, by the time you're at the end of this interview, you'll know that he's a great storyteller, that he's a raconteur, that he's sharp as a tack, that he has a memory for the little details that really bring stories to life. That happened here in the interview. It happens in his book. Have a read. It's good stuff. First, though, spend a few minutes with me and Ted Kotchin. Cabbage Town Now, for Torontonians to know, Cabbage Town Now is a, a pretty Tony kind of place. It wasn't when you were born. No, there. it was the ultimate slum in Toronto. <laughs> that, it was called Cabbage Town because well, supposedly the Irish immigrants grew cabbages in the, instead of uh, grass in their front lawns. That's right. <laughs> and, and you were born there into poverty. How did you sort of, you know, make your way through... Uh, that into an interest in television and radio and and film. Oh, that's a long story. First of all, I think my father was an immigrant and first went to Edmonton because he had a sister who Mm -hmm. immigrated ahead of him and was living in Edmonton. And he got a job as an usher in a movie movie theater, in a very posh movie theater with velvet seats. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, you know? (laughs) And uh, he used to show people to their seats. And he saw... These Hollywood films, he fell in love with cinema, with movies. He right. loved movies. He was from Bulgaria, right? He was from Bulgaria, yeah. correct. And, uh, and he got married to my mother, also from Bulgaria. And um, then he, when he, uh, he got a job as a, as a milkman, and then as a baker, as a, he delivered bread. Uh, but anyway, he loved films so much that when, when I was a boy, we used to go to, and there was no television then, remember? Yeah. There was no visual entertainment. He took me to the movies at least twice a week for double features at the local cinema. It was called a Mayfair, I think. And and was that the kind of thing where it, it, movies today, now when you go see a movie, you go, oh, it starts at uh, 2.15. I'm going to be there at 2.15 to catch the beginning. The Mayfair probably just would have played movies all day kind of continuously. You knew kind of dropped in and out as you went, yes, right? That's right. Yeah. But, but you know, I, I've seen, Richard... <laughs> Every film made in Hollywood from 1935 <laughs> to 1950. Because <laughs> I saw them all. Yeah. And sometimes I, I'll see a film on television. And my wife, I said, do you know how this turns out? Said, Don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and do you remember what it was then that, that uh, your father gave to you? I mean, he took you to the movies. You enjoyed them, obviously. But what was it about the movies themselves that, that drew you in? Well, I don't know. I loved, I loved, I mean, I love. It's funny. I loved Humphrey Bogart and and Ingrid Bergman. And later on, I came to do a show with a play with Ingrid Bergman. And I loved I loved the Hitchcock. I loved Hitchcock's films. Um, I, and I loved I loved the Thin Man with Myrna Loy and yeah. William Powell and their dog Asta. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> you remember. <laughs> so I've seen all those films. And I don't know. It just got into me. And then I really wanted to be a poet. To tell you the truth, Richard. After because right. I, I studied English literature at university, right. University of Toronto. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I, but as my father said to me, Ted, there's no money in poetry. And I said, yeah, dad, and there's no money in poetry. And there's no poetry in money. <laughs> but anyway, he was right. And so suddenly he was the one who said, hey, Ted, you know, look, the CBC is going to open a television station. This was 1952. Yeah. And I opened a television station on Jarvis Street. He said, you want to be a writer? Why don't you get a job as a writer down there? Well, of course, 
I was 21 and wet behind the ears. Wet, I was soaking behind the ears. <laughs> <laughs> so when I went there, and I was interviewed by a wonderful man, Maver Moore. Do you remember Maver Moore? Maver Moore, Moore yeah. He, I mean, uh, he Maver Moore in the cultural life of Toronto is is a huge, looming figure. Of course. He acted, he produced, mm-hmm. he directed, he did everything in the theater. Yeah. But anyway, he was head of programming for the CBC. And, then, and I interviewed him. And I think he was amused by my, my impertinence. Yeah, Here yeah. I was, 21, and green as grass, <laughs> and saying, I'm going to be a writer in your show. And he said, then, but he offered me a job as a stagehand. And I said, I'll only do a stagehand if I can work the drama shows. I don't want to work, I don't want to work news or light entertainment. Right. I want to work dramas. And he, he, I got a job. And, and th- back then, they were doing uh, fairly involved dramas. I mean, I, I've, I've heard stories. I, was, I wasn't uh, watching television then. I wasn't around then. But... <laughs> But they were doing really, really interesting, kind of groundbreaking work. Oh, yeah. Then what happened was that I became a writer for Sidney Newman, who wrote documentaries. And I wrote 10 documentaries with him. I say I wrote, he did, I I would do the draft and he would would rewrite them totally. But he he explained (laughs) to me the whole art of writing for documentaries. And he said, Ted... You're, 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 what you're writing you're say, is saying the same thing as the pictures. No, you have pictures say one thing, and the writers, the, the, the writing, yeah. and the, uh, there's something else. Add to it, you get two from, for the price of one. Right. But then suddenly, as it only can happen in a big organization like the CBC, the head of drama there died or something, and they asked Sidney to come over and be head of drama. And he said, and he accepted it, and he said, Ted, you've got to come with me. I know nothing about drama. I know nothing. And he says, you, you're a graduate of English literature. Come with me and, and, and be my story editor. So I was at 23, I went. And then finally one day, uh, after working for about eight, nine months, he came to me and said, you know, Ted, you're a pretty good writer. Not a great writer, <laughs> but you're a pretty good writer. But you know what you would be good at? I said, no, Ted. No, no, Sidney, what would I be good at? He said, you've got all the makings to be a fabulous director. What led him? To, I kicked. I was my, just going to ask, what did he see Richard, in you? I yeah. kicked my bum to this day <laughs> that I didn't ask him. What? What did he see in me at twenty-three? Yeah. And then I, so I, so he said, "Here's the deal. I'll let you direct one play. If I like it, I'll give you a year's contract. If I don't like it, you're up in the street. You can't come back to this job." Wow. He said, "But if you don't want to risk it, you can stay because you're doing a good job as a story editor here." No, I said, no, no, I want to risk it. I wanted to be a director because I'd, I'd watched them directing. And I've, being, being a, a brazen, brazen young man, I thought, oh, I, can be better. I can do better than that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, and, uh, and those were the days. And then he, I directed one, one play, and uh, he liked it and gave me a year's contract. I'm speaking with Ted Kotcheff. His book is called Director's Cut. It's available wherever fine books, and I suppose not so fine books are sold, uh, everywhere right now. You can pick it up, and we're going to walk through uh, Ted's career. We're starting now. We're at the CBC. You've just directed your first play. Do you remember what it was? Uh, yes, it was. I don't forget the title, but it was about a man in a concentration camp, right, being grilled by the by the authorities. And this is live television. Live. And so, when you're doing live television. Anything can happen. That's right. And so what kind of preparations do you make in advance? Or what kind of prep do you did you do as a twenty three year old at the helm of a of a live television show where, you know, you never know what could go on. Did you do any prep work in advance? Oh yeah, what you do well what you did do, you had four cameras and you rehearsed for two weeks and you and you staged it very carefully. And then you had two days in the studio with four cameras. And you, you, you designed all the shots and you'd written them all out. Each camera knew the shots that they had to mm-hmm. take. 
And then you rehearse for two days with the four cameras. And then, boy, it was nerve-wracking, I can yeah. tell you, Richard. Yeah. When I she said, 10 seconds, Ted, 10, 9. <laughs> and my, my stomach would start to churn. But I'll tell you a very funny story. The start, and the, our theme music was Charlie Chaplin's Smile. Right. Smile when your heart is aching. Smile, right. smile when your heart is breaking. That song, but not words, just the song. Okay. That was our song. That was our theme song. And of course, your stomach is churning. Well, my, oh, goodness me. The show's going all over Canada. <laughs> Five, four, three, nine, two, one. Hit it. Hit the music. Fade up on three. Kill him. Kill him, for goodness sake. Yeah. Cut the two. Take it. Like this, it went on for an hour. And it just kicks in. It just yeah. You were waving, yeah. waving your finger in front of the switcher's face because he was sitting right beside me, cutting from one camera to the next. And it was unbelievable. How we did, you know, it only was a period of, everybody's fascinated now mm -hmm. about that short period when we were doing live television drama for about, it lasted only about uh, 10 years. Yeah. And then we, they went to tape. Well, and, and none of them were saved, really. No. Uh, there, they, no, no. there were kinoscopes, or I think they were called. Called kinoscopes. Uh, yeah, kinoscopes. They don't exist really anymore, though. No, you're true. Yeah. But you know, I'm, I'm famous in England for, in during a live television. This is the Gareth Jones story, right? That's right. That's so right. tell us that, because I, I wanted to ask you about this. It's funny, but it's not, it's, it's a tragic uh, circumstance, but I think it's one of those things where time plus tragedy kind of equals a little bit of comedy anyway. <laughs> that's true. Anyway, uh, what happened was that the, the, it's, it's about an H-bomb falls on London, destroying it. Right. And the only pe the people that survive it were people down in the subway, 300, 400 feet below ground. And uh, and they're going from one ruined station to another, trying to get trying to get to Leicester Square or somewhere or somewhere downtown. And there's six, so you follow these six people who were passengers. Yeah, and this is live, live, yes, this live. This is live. live. And we yeah. had a we had built incredible sets with a whole subway, English subway underground station, yeah. ruined and piles of rubble and the things, you know. And uh, and the and there's a villain who betrays the other five people, played by a wonderful 33 year old actor called Gareth Jones. He was brilliant, a lovely man too. And towards getting towards the end of Act Two, the makeup girl came running, and she said, "Ted, Ted," uh, he said, "Gareth Jones fainted. They, I was putting black smudges on his face because he was working with all the garbage and the rubble. I mean, and and I put the rubble, and, and suddenly he, he he fainted, and his face fell right into the act to the uh, makeup tray. And he was, of course, a very and um, I said, um, I said." They had, we had to go on. It was live. Yeah. We had to keep going. And he was a very important character. He was he was the villain, you know. And but um, I, so I said um, that we were we were the, about four minutes from the end of Act Act uh, Two. And uh, when it faded back, I started to go. She came and said, "Ted, Ted, Gareth, he died. He died." 33-year-old, I had a heart attack. Oh, my goodness me. Get the actors together. So I went out. There was a three-minute commercial break, and I went out to the, <laughs> went out to the got, get, get all together, please. Uh, I didn't tell them that Gareth had died. I just told them that he was, um, um, uh, had passed out. He was unwell. Unwell, yeah. that's right. So here's what we're going to do. Now, you're going to take his lines over here. This thing, you're going to walk there. You're going to drink. When you go to the subway station, go to this, do this. And it was two acts yeah. had to be covered. And I said, you sick his lines. And, and, and poor the, my uh, production assistant said, one minute, Ted, one minute. <laughs> and I told her, get two Charlie Chaplin, two realists in case we fade, in case we get in so bad that we fade to black. 30 seconds, 30 seconds, Ted, 30 seconds. It's a commercial break, you know? So I said, I said now here's, here's what you, you're going to go, when you don't, over there, you're going to be hide behind that rubble during that scene and go down the, and you'll go down the subway tunnel. And I thought we had built subway tunnels. It was fantastic sets. And 
15 seconds, 10. <laughs> Good luck, everybody. And I run back in the studio. 10, wow. 9, 8. <laughs> and my stomach's churning again. And, um, and I got back, and I said to my sister, you, you call the shots. Ready, shot, 120. And I'll go ahead and see. I'm, there's going to be difficulties because, yeah. you know. And, and uh, so they went. They started. I said, oh, camera three. Hide behind the rubble. Hide behind the rubble in the, in the runes. Television. Quick, 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 quick. Okay, take two. Because we're shooting the rubble now, and the camera's right. hiding hidden behind it. I said, and then two panel left, panel left, panel left, two. Okay, three, you can come out from behind the rubble because I need you for the close-up of, of, of Donald Houston. And he comes out and takes the, you know, so we, and anyway, Donald Houston was great because he showed up at the end of this long subway tunnel, and he was supposed to meet the villain played by Gareth Jones right. there. And he's no, not there. The five of them stand there for a second. He's very smart. He says, um... Let's let's we'll probably it's probably further down. Yeah. So let's go down this tunnel here, and I he alerted me that I, I immediately got a camera at the far end of the tunnel, and they came towards me. I, I was improvising yeah. live Unlocked. television. Well, I'm amazed they didn't have understudies. No, no. I guess that just didn't occur to nobody. No, Thirty-three-year-old no. men don't. Who, who drop thought dead? anybody would die on yeah. on, on camera? <laughs> I mean, on, on, during a live show, it was just. And when you were doing them for the for the CBC here, would you do uh, time zones? Would you do one earlier and then one a little bit later, or was it just one live show a night? No, I would do. I would do. Oh, no, I do a live show every three weeks. But every three. But but for one show. Yes. You do it for the East Coast and then the West Coast, or no? No, no, just, just one. No, no, one show for the whole country. That was probably just that was enough. <laughs> anyway, anyway, somehow we got to the end of the show. Yeah. And people are still amazed, uh, are amazed at the fact that I did. I pulled this off somehow. I don't know, and I don't know how I pulled it off. And you had to tell his fiance. Oh, what happened is Donald Houston, the lead man, was his, a very good friend of, of Gareth Jones. And he said, Ted, I, I, he said, he was my best friend. I know his, he's going to get married in two weeks. And he said, I can't, I, can't, I, can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't tell her that he's dead. Please do me a favor and phone her and tell her. He says, she's going to, say, she's going to know that something's wrong because he disappears halfway through the, yeah. halfway through, through the play. So I phoned her and I had that onerous job of <clears throat> telling her, and she burst into tears. And I was, oh, it was the whole thing was just. And then finally, when I got back, every the whole the whole cast were weeping, mm -hmm. especially Donald, because they thought he had just passed out. But yeah. then they, of course, at the end of the play, they learned that he was dead. That story and more is in the book Director's Cut by my guest Ted Kotcheff. So you do a lot of live television in England, and then you make a movie called Tierra Tahiti. Yes, with James Mason. Yes. Now, now it seems like a much different thing. How do you get the? How do you go from live television to working? You know, with James Mason, who uh, was at the time, and John Mills. I mean, these are big British, classic, big British film stars. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, it's a lot easier. <laughs> to do a film when you're doing only you're shooting two minutes of film a day right. as against an hour live. <laughs> yeah. So, but but of course, uh, the levels of, I mean, um, how do you like this, Richard? You're, you're, you're 29 years old. You're going to do your first feature film with these two major stars and, uh, with, and uh, you have... Tahiti as your location. Yeah, yeah, Imagine you're shooting that. live. Yeah, oh, you're there. Wow. I shot my location. Uh, the location we shot the whole film in Tahiti. Can you imagine that? Wow. 
Wow, is this extraordinary? And James Mason, uh, I think of him as being quite reserved. Yes. You know, we've seen him for years in classic films, but he always played sort of a button-down kind of reserved character. And he was that to an extent, but you tell a story in your book about yeah. how he wasn't always that. Well, he, what happened was that he... It, it, we, we, when we were shooting in Tahiti, we had adjoining houses. With, we, had, we had Tahitian servants. And and uh, first night, he said, why don't you come over to my house? He says, uh, my, my assistant is a very good cook, and she'll make us a good dinner tonight after shooting. Right. So I went over there, and I'm talking. And I talk volubly like I'm talking now. <laughs> because I'm a big talker. <laughs> and uh, he's not saying a word. And I said to myself, I, either I'm the most boring man on earth, <laughs> yeah, 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 or there's something, or, or he's the most reserved man on earth, and um, so I finished talking, and somehow toward after about an hour of me talking solidly all through dinner, finally at the end he kind of loosened up a bit and started to talk. I said, "Whew!" Then, <laughs> then, then the next night I invited Richard. I mean, I, Richard, I invited uh, James Mason to come to my my house and have dinner. It was definitely as if we sat down, and as it was if we had never met before. Right. Again, I'm doing all the talking. He's not saying a word. So finally, <laughs> after about three, three occasions of this, I said to him, James, why don't you, what's going on here? And I told him, I asked him, and he said, Ted, I'm telling you, he said, it's this damned British reserve. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's it's I'm the curse of my life, he said. And you're the first person who's enduring it and breaking it down. I love you. Uh, and yeah, he loved me so much. We worked. We made two films together. Yeah, yeah. And um, and he, he that because because I was able to. You know, he couldn't stand he, the other thing. You know, he had the most beautiful voice. Yeah. He could not stand to see himself. He never came to dailies, and I think he never, ever saw one of the films that he was in. Isn't he couldn't stand looking at himself. He couldn't stand his voice. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and yeah. considering what a great star he and was. And what a and handsome what a man, and that everybody used to talk about his, his rich, plummy voice, yeah. you know? <laughs> the Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. A Canadian classic. Mordecai Richler and you actually shared a house in, it, like, well, was it a house? It was a squat, wasn't it? It was, it was a, a terrible a, place. A slum, a slum apartment. <laughs> in London. Yeah. Uh, so you were friendly, you know, you know, all that. You you know, you, you got the job uh, to direct this film. And it is one of the quintessentially uh, Quebec stories. It is a very quintessentially Canadian story. Uh, and yet you didn't cast Canadians. Can you tell me why? Well, um, <clears throat> I, when I was casting uh, Richard, I mean the part that Richard Reif, uh, yeah. Richard Reif ultimately played, Dirty Kravitz, um, I auditioned plenty of Canadians. I obviously wanted to use Canadians, and mm -hmm. I did use uh, uh, some Canadian, yep. uh, many Canadian actors in it. But, but uh, I didn't find it's a very difficult part, that part of Dirty Kravitz. He does a lot of unpalatable things. And you've got to feel feel for him and understand where he's coming from and right. why he does why he does these nasty things. Um, and um, so I auditioned, auditioned, auditioned. I just never felt it was somebody who could carry the film. It was a two-hour film, over two hours. I didn't feel that people would carry the film. And finally, I I had used a well-known, famous casting American casting director called Lynn Stollmaster. And we'd work together. Oh, she's she's legendary. This one, him or him? <laughs> yeah. No, but but uh, I, I know the name. Yeah, Lynn Stolmaster. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's got a woman's name, but it's Lynn Stolmaster. He's a male, <laughs> but he's fantastic. Yeah. I, and he's done all the great films in Hollywood, and I'd worked with the film, and I phoned him up and said, uh, Lynn, I, I 
I just can't find somebody to play this lead. And it was, we were done. We were ready to shoot for like three weeks before shooting. I still hadn't got a, and I'd gone to New York as well. I'd auditioned mm -hmm. New York actors. I auditioned every actor in Canada. So he said, send me the script. So I sent him the, I sent him the script and he got it the next morning. And he said, then he phoned me up and he said, Ted, this is a fabulous script. This is one of the best scripts I've read in 10 years. And he says, there's an actor who was born to play it. I said, who is it? You've never heard of him, Richard Dreyfuss. I said, you're right. <laughs> I said, I never heard of him. And he said, and he says, I said, what has he done? He says, well, he did a play about Dillinger. He did a film about Dillinger. He plays Babyface Nelson. Oh, I said, oh, I'll look at him. He said, don't look, don't look at him. <laughs> I said, why not? He said, he overacts a bit. <laughs> Lynn, you're recommending an actor for Duddy Kravitz or overacts? <laughs> he said, listen, Ted, I'm going to bring the 10 best young, promising young stars. And we'll audition them, and I'll bet you you end up with Richard Dreyfuss. And he was right. So I flew down to Hollywood, and I auditioned. And not only, you know, I, when, when Richard came in, um, I'd always seen someone who looked like me, right. like dark, dark hair, dark eyes, with a Slavic look. In comes this guy with the blue eyes, because he was German-Jewish, yeah. you see. And I was, oh, my God, it doesn't look the way I always imagined it. And then, <laughs> and, and then he opened his mouth, he auditioned, and as soon as he opened his mouth, it was electric. He grabbed your attention, he grabbed your sympathies, he grabbed your feelings, and so... That's how he got cast. But didn't you watch a little bit of American Graffiti and say, oh, he's an introvert in that. I don't know if it's the right way. That's I don't know right. if it's the no, right guy. Yes, yes, he, play, yes he played a part in, uh, in uh, American Graffiti. And, he, and instead of playing this kind of extroverted character. Which Duddy Kravitz is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was the picture, the play, the, the film. One guy says, Answer me one question, Gravis. Why do you always run around like you've got a red-hot poker up your ass? That's right. Remember? And I said that was what the picture was. Why is he doing behaving like this? <laughs> well, it's funny. You talk about auditions there. You estimate that uh, for Law & Order SUV, SVU, I always say SUV because it's the car, uh, SVU, uh, you auditioned 27,000 actors. Do you, is that possible? Yes, well, I did 298 shows <laughs> on Law & Order SVU. I, I, exec, I was the exec producer. Yeah. I hired the director, and I did the, uh, the, the casting. And uh, one day I saw my assistant, or maybe after about, I, I was there for 12 years, uh, 12 years, and about year 8 or 9 or 10, she was, <laughs> she was going through looking at all the tapes because we taped all the interviews, right. um, all the auditions, rather. Yeah, yeah. And um, she sa I said, what, what are you doing? She said, I'm counting the number of actors, Ted, that you read for the show, and I'm now <laughs> at 25,000. <000." laughs> I said, what? <laughs> I auditioned over 25,000 actors well, over, over a period of 10 years. Well, certainly every stage actor in New York yeah. eventually ends up on one yes. of the law and orders. I mean, yeah. it was just, it's a rite of passage now. That's right, exactly right. Well, that show, uh, I think, was so interesting for uh, any number of reasons, but uh, for me, it was one of the first shows to deal with sexual assault and and that sort of thing in a much more realistic way than uh, almost anybody had done before on television. That's right. I mean, that that was really uh, what attracted me because I think that's the, the, the Dick Wolf and, and this series. He invented the series mm -hmm. with me. We worked on it. We developed it together. It went into an area that no one had ever gone to before, and if I'm going to work in television after all those films, I thought I'd better something fresh and different. Yeah, yeah. And and so we went into this into area of sexual of of sexual crimes, 
rapes and child molestation too. And um, so it, it was, but it was, dif it was difficult. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, 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 um, the, when we, when, when I went up, I stayed with the, I went up, the, 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 the police department that deals with sexual crimes right. is called the Special Victims Unit up in, it's, it's 105th Street and, um, in New York. And I, and I, the New York Police Department allowed me to sit there for two or three weeks and watch well, the things and right. watch interviews through the, et cetera. And um, the first thing I saw, two women came in crying. They were Hispanic women. And they had a little five-year-old child, and her, her hand was wrapped in a, in a bandage. So I said to the sergeant, I said, hey, I said, Sean, what's going on over there? He says, oh, you won't believe this. said, you won't believe this. He said, it's the two women are sisters, and the little girl is, is the five-year-old daughter. of." And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, she came down early one morning when the dad was frying bacon, and he said, shut up, because she was dancing around making a lot of noise. So he said, I told you to shut up. And then when she did, continued to sing and dance around, he grabbed her left hand, plunged it onto the red hat, hot frying pan, and burned off all her fingers. Oh, my God. And I sat, I sat down. Because one thing I, I can't stand, Richard, is child abuse. I yeah. can't stand it. Innocence betrayed like that, you know. And I said, so I said, Sean, didn't you want to pull your gun out and shoot the bastard? And he said, I tell you, Ted, it did cross my mind. Yeah. <laughs> but... What happened was that because the, the, the average life, there's only one thing that was not true about my series. Because I, I was 12 years, and I had Mariska Hargitay and Chris Maloney as my stars. Yep. In the actual department. They don't last that they long. They don't last two years, three years, tops three years. Because someone said to me, Ted, no one can take the children. Yeah. You know, no one can take the children. And they'd say... Get me out of here after yeah. two years. I want to go back to dealing with drug dealers Vice or, or, or something. And yeah. bash them in the face or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the book is called Director's Cut. The author is Ted Kotcheff. Uh, there's lots to talk about. We're going to run out of time. We've only got one more segment left, but I've got lots more that I want to uh, cover here with you. Um, we talked about the apprenticeship of, of Duddy Kravitz. Um, let's start right now with uh, First Blood. First Blood, we've just got a minute here left in this segment. First Blood was a book. And it were, uh, was a script that had kicked around Hollywood for a while. Al Pacino had it for a while, apparently. Uh, nobody really wanted to make it until it landed in your hands. Can you start the story now of why you wanted to make this film? Well, I was very – because at the end of the Vietnam War, the, the, the treatment that the, that the veterans, Vietnam veterans got was horrific. They were rejected. They were vilified. The right wing thought they were a bunch of losers. The left wing thought they were a bunch of baby killers. And, you know, they were just, they'd, and none of it was true, of course. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so what happened was that, that's, that they were treated so badly coming back. After all, they'd just been fighting two years in a war, and they, and they come back, and they're, they're rejected, and they're not allowed to live in areas, and they're driven away. The statistics were horrendous, Richard. In 1980... A thousand Vietnam veterans tried to commit suicide every month. Three hundred and a third of them were successful. Well, so that's why I felt the picture had had kind of emotional resonances, and and I think that I think the American public certainly began to feel guilty about what they had done to these people. And I thought this film that uh, this film 
had this kind of, as they say, emotional resonance. Rambo, in fact, I conceived of it as a kind of a, like as a kind of a suicide mission because he had traveled now. He was probably looking for a place where he could be accepted in America. He was a Congressional Medal of Honor winner, but they treated him like dirt. He yeah. comes in in this American town and they kick him around like a piece of rubbish. And he's a Congressional Medal of Honor and a war hero, but he's not treated like them. So in World War II, the heroes, the returning veterans, were treated as heroes. They had marching bands. They had bands, you know, standing up saying, welcome home, you know. And they were treated like heroes. But the Vietnam veterans were treated like rubbish. As they say, they were vilified and rejected. And so I really, I thought that that was a great way uh, great subject matter. This this man finally had it too much. When they kicked him out, remember they wouldn't they wouldn't let John Rambo buy a hamburger in the town. They That's just, right. And they dumped him. The sheriff dumps him on the on the outside of the town. And Sylvester Stallone. What was it about him that brought you in? Because you kind of butted heads a little bit with him during the making of the film. Not, not really. No. I I I loved him. I mean, the funny thing was that he was only at the time. The received wisdom in Hollywood was he only works on Rocky right. because he made two Rocky films, big successes, but he made four other films, Paradise Alley and Nighthawks, uh, Fist, and they all died. Yeah. So the received wisdom was Sylvester Stallone only works in Rocky. Only in the boxing ring. That's right, yeah. only in the boxing <laughs> ring. And I said, no, 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 this guy's perfect. He's got the strength, but there's like, a kind of a poignancy about him, which I love. It would be perfect for that part. You would understand what, what had, why he was doing what he was doing. And and, um, and and I cast him, but no, he was he was wonderful. We uh, what happened was he was a very good writer, mm -hmm. and when I, he heard that I wanted to, when when I offered him the part, he said, "I understand you you're going to rewrite the scripts." Like I said, "Yes, I am." Uh, he says, "Well, I'd love to join join you with with you," and I said, "Fine, we work together." But it, but he he made and he has this thing about Sylvester Stallone, Richard. He has a good popular sense, right? And for example, the biggest biggest change that he suggested. Was it that, as I said, I conceived of it as a suicide mission because it was based on on the suicides of all, and he he commits Harry Carey at the end of the film yeah. in, the, in the way we originally staged mm -hmm. it in the original version. Yeah. yeah. So he he so he reaches out and he commits Harry Carey by pressing the gun that is in the hands of his colonel, and uh, blows himself away. And he did it. It was brilliant. It was moving. It was brilliantly acted. He was great in the part. And he says, "Ted, can, after I said cut," he said, "Ted, can I talk to you for a minute?" I said, sure. He said, Ted, we've put this character through so much. He's, he's chased by dogs. He's pursued by the cops. They shoot him and they wound him. He jumps off cliffs into, into trees to break his fall. And I said, and he says, and now we're going to kill him? <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're right. I think you're, you've, got a, you've got a real point. I said, because he shouldn't die at the end. Because that means the guys like the sheriff in that town would win, right. even though he defeats, he smashes, he de he he, de he, de he de destroys this town the way the way he used to destroy villages in Vietnam. But at the same time, he's if he dies, they win. So I said, okay, I'm gonna, I know exactly what I'm gonna do, and I and it, and I, uh, I shot another ending in two hours right after that in one shot. Yeah, the one that's in the film now. <laughs> but he he had this. Great popular sense, um, Sylvester. As he he knew what audiences wanted to see and what they what they didn't want to see. And when we tested the film with the original suicide ending, the audience went crazy at the end. They said, 
they, 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 and they, all the cards that we filled out in the test, they said, this is the best action film I've ever seen. But how could you kill <laughs> Rambo? <laughs> Exclamation mark and underlining of Rambo. And, the and, the and, best action scene I've ever seen, except for the last five minutes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what, is it true that at, at one point he said in the rewriting process, he said, you know what? I don't think John Rambo should speak. Yes. Yeah. He one wanted day, him to be day, mute. One day we 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 uh, were, were working we were working together and he came inside. He said, "I got this crazy idea, Ted." I said, "What is it?" Rambo never says a single word <laughs> in the film, and of course, as a director, I love extreme yeah. ideas like this. Something that's never been done before. Can you imagine? Comes out a film that the hero never says a single yeah, word. An action hero an, that an doesn't action speak. Hero, yeah. Never speaks. Never speaks. I said, "Oh, I love it. Let's do it." And we spent two or three days here, and finally, I said on the third day, I said, "You know, Sylvester, he would really speak here." And he would really speak over here, and it's forced, it's forced and unnatural for him not to speak. So I said, I'm going to But the, the two or three days we spent eliminating all the dialogue it had a salutary effect. It made the whole script very laconic, mm -hmm. very few words, mostly pictures. And uh, for example, there was a great line that, that they quote in the film of, they drew first blood, yeah. not me. Think about it, six words. Yeah. They drew first blood. Not me. They're so strong. Well, I think, economical. Well, I think that 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 echoes of that idea that you've got this action hero, man of few words, resonates even today. The last Jason Bourne movie, apparently Matt Damon only has twenty five lines in the entire movie, <laughs> and he was paid twenty five million bucks. Paid a million bucks a line. Wow, apparently. that's good. Good. That's yeah, good money if yep. you can get it. Very good but, money. But I think that's sort of an echo from that yes. movie. Yeah, it's true. It had a now, very salutary effect. We've only got a few minutes left. I want to ask a couple of kind of uh, quick fire questions here. Um, you have said, and you say in the book, that the most fun is the imagining of the movie, the sitting around thinking about the movie. The shooting of the movie is sort of not as much fun. It's, <laughs> it's the idea of it beforehand. Yeah. Does that ring true? Yes, it's true. I mean, um, I become obsessed with the film in my head. I can, I see, I mean, the, the best word for what I do is not directing. I shouldn't be called a director because the director sounds like a guy who runs a bank or something. <laughs> <laughs> the French have a great word for it, réalisateur, yeah. a realizer. Yeah. Because that's the idea. You have a, the, I have this picture, the vision of this picture in my head. I see, I see the, whole, the whole film and now I have to realize it. And of course, it's much easier to dream about the film in your head than to have to go through the, the realities of turning that into reality. That's right. <laughs> I'm speaking with Ted Kotcheff. The book is called Director's Cut. It's available wherever fine books are sold right now. Pick it up. You'll want to hear the stories about Weekend at Bernie's and First Blood and all sorts of things. Um, Gene Hackman, you directed in Uncommon Valor. Gene Hackman, I think, is one of the great screen actors of all time, hands down, no questions. He's in a, a, almost a, a class of his own and it's pretty rarefied air that he breathes and I love in the book he said to you I only want three directions more less faster slower louder softer anything else <laughs> screws me up <laughs> that's true and you're, you're very perspicacious like I tell you Richard he is in my estimation the best actor I've ever worked with yeah it was extraordinary there's something about him that no matter what he's doing and he can do it all he can do comedy, he can do action, he can do, but there's just something about him that when he's not speaking, you still know what he's thinking. You still know what's going on in his head. You know, Richard, he doesn't, he doesn't act. He's not doing, he's, he's not an actor. He's not acting. He is the character. Right. 
Right. He's being. He's bees. So I can. It's great working with him because I can ask him to do anything. Because he'll always do it the way that the colonel would do it. Yeah. So I can ask him to stand on his head, take his clothing off, and read the Bible backwards, and he would. He would do it. He would do it exactly the way the colonel would do it. Yeah. No, so he, he was extraordinary to work with that regard. It's such a shame that he's retired. Yeah, well, he's 89. Is he getting well? So is Clint Eastwood. I mean, they're, they're contemporaries. Know. You know, these guys are, the, and, and Clint is still making two or three movies a year. I just think it's such a shame that there wasn't uh, a swan song, that there wasn't a, no. a, a last hurrah, you know? No, but if you want to see him, see him in my film. Yeah, in Uncommon Valor. Uncommon yeah. Valor. He was extraordinary. Um, you uh, have not made sequels. You are someone, Rambo, First Blood, went on to spawn a bunch of sequels. There's sequels to Weekend of Bernie's. Uh, I'm sure there's others in there. Why don't you, do you not like to revisit? Is that it? Or Well, I'm not, in, I'm not inclined. After all, I've, been, I've spent a whole year, more than a year, maybe a year and a half of my life, inhabiting the world of, say, First Blood. Yeah. Right? And I knew that character. He didn't, he hated the violence. He had more than his fill of violence in Vietnam, of killing people and seeing his friends all die around him. He didn't, back in America, he didn't want, he wanted to avoid violence. So you notice in that film, he never kills anybody yeah. in the thing. He just refuses, you know. So, but, but and then they, they want to do a sequel. And now they turn him into a killing machine mm -hmm. in the second one. He killed 74 people. And I said, hey, that's not my vision of the character. I, I, I can't direct that. I can't make him from what he is in my film and suddenly do a killing machine. And that's what happened. That's why I didn't do that one. Yeah. Now, Weekend, um, Weekend at Bernie's, I, they wanted me to do uh, the sequel to that, which is because the, both those films were hugely successful yeah. and they wanted to cash in on the success. And Weekend at Bernie's, I, I said, I'm sorry, I got no more dead man jokes. I've, ex <laughs> I've exhausted all my dead man jokes. So. <laughs> well, it, don't you say that directing comedy is harder than directing drama? Oh, that's the hardest thing, yes. Making people I, laugh? I always, say, I always say to people, they say, well, how come? Comedy is such fun. Is that easy to work with? I said, okay, smart ass. Okay, Richard, make me laugh. Yeah. Do something. Come on. Say something. Do something. Make me laugh. Dead silence. Now you know why. <laughs> <laughs> You know, normally when we're done an interview, I'm kind of like, well, that's great. Thanks very much. See you later. Don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. Ted Kochev is one of those guys I could have talked to for a whole lot longer. He's fascinating. So many great stories. So much detail. Check out his book, Director's Cut. It's all in there. I just didn't have any more than an hour to talk to him because he was being taken away to talk to other people right after he walked out of the door of the house across. But, but really, check out the book. It's worth a read. That's it, though. That's all there is. Go to the bookstore right now. Leave the house across. I know I invited you in. Now it's over. Time for you to go. Glad that you stopped by. Really pleased to see you. And I want to thank you. I want to thank Ted Kotchiff, Cynthia Nixon, Terrence Davies. But really, you know, it's all about you guys. Those guys, it's great that they come by. There'd be no show without them. But there'd really be no show if there was no one here to listen to them. So thank you very much for coming by. Happy to see you every single week. We put a new show up every single Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. So please swing by and see us again. Who knows? It might be one of your favorite people.